the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, podcast host loses voice, turns to beautiful assistant for help. The new year comes clashing and clanging in like a steampunk blimp. Maine is entangled with the world of fairy. Or is it the world of fairy that gets entangled with Maine? Plus, part 39 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm not Bain editor Tony Daniel. He has a troublesome sore throat. Happy New Year! This time, we have an interview with Sharon Lee discussing the third book in her Archer's Beach series, Carousel Seas. Sharon talks about the mythos of her contemporary fantasy and discusses whether there really is a difference between being an elf and a manor. And we also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic as read by Bronson Pinchot. And now, here's the news. The January new books are out at booksellers everywhere. These include Spellblind by David Coe. This is a new series by a well-regarded epic fantasy writer. But this series is contemporary fantasy with a magic-wielding detective trying to track down a particularly nasty magic-wielding serial killer. Also out is Carousel Seas by Sharon Lee. This is book three in the Archer's Beach series and the finale to the series. Sharon will discuss the book with us in depth in a moment. And we have another big finale, a big John Ringo offering. This is the conclusion to his four-book Black Tide Rising science-based zombie series, and it is called Strands of Sorrow. This has been an action-packed and also a really moving series with two heroine sisters you really will come to care for. Spellblind, Carousel Seas, and Strands of Sorrow are all available at booksellers everywhere. I want to welcome Sharon Lee back to the podcast. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Tony. Sharon Lee and her husband, Steve Miller, are the creators of the Leiden Universe Science Fiction Series, a saga that's been continuing for 26 years. Is it 26 now? It was 25 last year, I believe. Yeah, 25 last year, so 26 this year. It kind of logically follows. Yeah, congratulations. And the latest entry there is, the last book that's been out is Trade Secret, right? Right. As well as an upcoming short story collection, A Leiden Universe Constellation, Volume 3, and next summer, uh, the next Leaden novel, um, the title of which is, uh, is it Dragon in Exile, Sharon? Dragon in Exile comes out on uh, June 2nd. We are really looking forward to that, um, and I certainly hope to have you and Steve uh, here to talk about it. Sharon is also the author of other novels, uh, solo novels, including books in the Archer's Beach series. These books so far include Carousel Tides, Carousel Sun, and now Carousel Seas 
which is out at booksellers everywhere. The Archer speech books are contemporary fantasy. The main character is Kate Archer, who is a part human, part supernatural being. She tried running away from the supernatural part of herself for a while, but that didn't quite work, so she moved back to her hometown and took over the carousel ride at an old-fashioned Maine amusement park. It's a carousel that's been in her family for generations, and it's also a magical gateway to various dimensions. Sharon, can you give us an idea of what Kate's carousel actually is, in, to, in addition to being a great old-fashioned ride? Um, Kate's carousel has many levels. On the, the first level, as you mentioned, it's an old-fashioned um, wooden, wooden carousel. The um, <clears throat> animals were carved by um, a great-great-great-something um, uncle from the wood on Kate's family's lots, and then they're carved from basswood and tubular wood, um, which are very, very long lasting woods. So this this carousel is going to last, um, it's already lasted 150 years and it's going to last even longer. Um, on another level, through no fault of anyone's except um, the, the kind of traffic cops of the multiverse, um, the carousel is a gateway um, into one of the, into all of the other five worlds. There are six interconnected worlds. So if you open the gateway and you think about going to the land of the flowers, you can go there. Um, if you open the gateway and you think about going to the land of wave and water, you'll go there. Um, it is also, and unfortunately, and this is a <clears throat> a burden to Kate's grandmother, who has been running the carousel for quite quite a number of years, um, it is a prison, and the reason it's a prison is not because of the carousel itself, but because of where the carousel is, and the carousel is in um, what Kate likes to characterize as the list and the least of the six worlds, um, what we call the real world, what the other, what the people who live in the other five worlds call the changing land, and our. Our big claim to fame is that things change here. Things change in the other worlds, but they change very, very, very slowly. In the changing land, things change really fast. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and what the wise, these, these intergalactic um, interworld traffic cops, have decided is that if we have these really kind of badass criminals from the other worlds and we really can't um, rehabilitate them, and we don't really know what to do with them. We can't, for various reasons, simply destroy them. Um, but if what if we put them in the changing land? Perhaps they'll change. So there's this big social experiment, um, and the wise have just sort of unilaterally um, decided that they will imprison these badasses in the carousel, um, disguised as carousel animals. And that's been going on for quite a number of years, and no one has really um, decided whether the social experiment has worked or not. Um, as a matter of fact, it's, it's widely thought that the wise have sort of forgotten about these um, six or seven people that have been that have been imprisoned. Now, that a lot of the uh, plot of Carousel Sun revolved around this, and there was a there was a jailbreak. Um, and as we begin uh, Carousel Seas, uh, Kate is trying to. Uh, what is she trying to do? She's trying to hide the fact that there's been this, uh, this light. She's trying to, trying to cover up the fact that, um, apparent, because, again, the changing land is, is 
so negligible politically and magically. Um, there's there's actually a revolution going on between the other five, um, the, within the sphere of the other five worlds. Um, the things have become magically unbalanced, and um, it's been discovered that um, that's on purpose. So several people have decided to take matters into their own hands and rebalance the um, world so that the magic can flow through the worlds on the back of the wind as it was supposed to have done. Um, what has happened is with the worlds having um, <clears throat> become misaligned is that some worlds have lots of magic and other worlds don't have very much at all and some are stagnating because they need, they need their magic to, to operate. Um, <clears throat> so this this is happening, and as part of this revolution, a, a being from another world has come through in Carousel Sun and has released all the prisoners. Um, many of them just ran home. Um, and Kate has, as, as Carousel sees opens, um, Kate has decided to throw in her lot with the rebels. She's not going to call the wise and say, oh, by the way, um, she's going to hide the fact that the that the prisoners are gone. Why does she? She's sort of right. pissed at the wise in a the the Ozali uh, wise. She she doesn't entirely trust their motives. Is that a good characterization? It doesn't because um, everybody everybody who deals with a lot of magic and who holds a lot of magic, the Ozali, um, it gets a little strange because magic in Kate's um, universe is a is a living thing and it seeks itself and it seeks more of itself and it seeks to have its own way. Um, so you have to be a very strong-minded person in order to, to um, control your magic and you have to be very careful not to have, not to hold more magic than you, than you can actually govern reasonably. Mm. Um, unfortunately, because of this trait of wanting to have more of itself, um, what usually happens to very great Azali people who can hold a lot of magic is that their heads explode. Uh -huh. So, um, and the wise are people who have managed to figure out how to hold a lot of magic without their heads exploding. So they are vastly crazy. They're, they're, um, <laughs> yeah. into, to understand what their motives might be. Um, the whole business with the carousel is, is just, it makes no sense. Um, let's just put these people in the changing lane and see if they change. Hey! Mm. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Um, but they're so powerful that people can't just say, you know, um, let's think this through. Um, there seems to be the... Actually, right to fear these people. Yeah. Well, I mean, they can still zap you even if they are crazy. The... Oh, yeah. And the magic is called Jikinap. How does How does this work in the in the universe framework here? There are um, different kinds of magic. The other thing that um, makes the changing land, it makes people from the other world look down at the changing land is that um, the very little bit of magic that is um, inherent in the changing land is, is land magic. It's, it's, it's rooted in rocks and in trees and in the ocean and it's not it's not a free-flowing element that can just be gathered up and used which is what chicken app is 
um, chicken app is a, is a substance. It's sort of like um, ectoplasm. Mm-hmm. You can you can strain it through the air and get it. Um, and while chicken app tends to be resident in people, so if you want more chicken app, as, as magic holders often do, you kill somebody and you take their magic. Okay, so it's it's not a very um, it's it's a rather savage system. The mm-hmm. um, magic in the changing land is is much gentler. Um, if you adopt a piece of land or a piece of land adopts you, um, you have some ability to to use its power. Um, but there's a trade. You have to take care of the land, and then the land will take care of you. And there, in the changing land, in our world, there is also um, this various magical beings. Um, I, they're sort of like elementals and, and sprites. They're called Trinve. Um, why are they here? And, and they're not exactly human, are they? Um, they're not exactly human. They're um, what used to be dignified as spirits of the place. Um, they are consciousnesses or... Um, people who have decided to be bound to one place and to care for it and to allow it to care for them. Um, Trenve arise in a number of ways. Sometimes they arise spontaneously from a piece of of land or from a rock um, or from a tree. There are dryads in in Kate's little town there. Um, Sometimes... um, as in the story that's just now on the Bain, <clears throat> the Bain website, um, sometimes the land calls to someone and puts the question basically: Do will you care for? Will you care for me, and I will care for you? Hmm. Um, that's a beautiful story, by the way. It's uh, and the nights ain't so lonely. Is that our title for it? Um, the night don't seem so lonely seem from an old Neil Diamond song. Right. Ah, yes. Um, it's it's a wonderful story. I'd encourage everyone to check it out. It's it's kind of a heartbreaking little tale, and it's a, it's about a younger boy um, in his journey, I guess, to uh, to Archer's Beach. It should be a great lead-in to Carousel Seas as well. If you uh, read that, it's free on the Bain dot com website. So where were we? The the trend. The, the, <laughs> all right. Oh, the trend bay. Um, and the, not only do we have an Orchard Beach Trenve, and Kate is the guardian. She's she's kind of like the uh, in a rational universe, she would be the boss because she's um, connected with the whole land of Orchard Beach rather than these little little tiny um, pieces and bits and stuff. Um, but this is Maine, um, <clears throat> and in Maine, we there might be a boss, but we don't always acknowledge the fact that the boss is the boss, um, and we're, we're sort of um, honor-bound to give her a hard time and to not make things easy for her. Um, the Trenve also have a, a reason not to trust Kate. Kate broke her vow to the land, and she left, as you mentioned. Um, she decided that she was not um, good enough and could never be good enough because of um, her background in the land of the flowers. Um, she would never be able to um, clear herself of the taint of, of having um, 
<clears throat> been raised in a society where you kill people for their magic. Um, so she left. She she broke her vow to the land and left um, and went out to Silicon Valley and, and messed around with computers for a while um, and, fi- and finally came home at the beginning of Carousel Tides. Um, but the Trenvei don't, she, she's an oath breaker, so they they don't they have every reason not to trust her. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of what she needs to do, besides learn her duties again as guardian, is to win the trust of the Trenvei. Yeah, the I mean, the, part of the wonderful feel of the of the Archer Speech books is the way that all of this magic, which we've been discussing, is blended with this small town Maine culture. Um, and just ordinary people with, a, I suppose, a Mainer perspective, right, Sharon? You are a Mainer, are you not? Or what do you call yourself up there, anyway? I'm a biscuit. Oh, yeah? What does that mean? There's this, oh, there's this old joke, um, which is the, uh, the old Mainer is talking to the guy from away. Okay, I'm a person from away because I moved from Baltimore to Maine. Um, and the old Mainer is saying to him, well, you're, you're not. You're not a Mainer, you're from away. And the, the guy from away says, yes, yes, I am from away. That's perfectly true. But my children will, were born here, and they are Mainers. To which the old Mainer says, uh-huh. And if your cat has kittens in the oven, do you call them biscuits? <laughs> there are many implications to that joke. <laughs> going through. So, um, but in, go ahead. Steve and I were talking about this the other, the, the other day which is that in Archer's Beach, just because you are a magical being um, or you can wield magic or you know powerful people, it doesn't mean that you don't have to also pay the rent. Um, it, Kate is the, the, you know, the queen of all she's to raise, um, but she's still going to run a carousel. Yeah, and the, the entire, it's, the carousel is part of an amusement park, and this amusement park... Uh, is really sort of a Trinvay employment agency, is it? Is, is, one of the things it does is gives them jobs. Well, it, it gives them jobs. It also gives the town. It, it is the major, the, the amusement park and the little um, carny next to the amusement park um, are the town's biggest employer. And one of the problems facing the whole town, the humans and the Trenvay and... Um, even the towns around them is the fact that this the season um, where everything is open has sh- has been shrinking historically from you know um, six months five months now it's down to twelve weeks twelve weeks of season isn't really enough to keep everybody through all of the rest of non season. So part of what the townies are trying to, the townies of all kinds, the regular humans and the Trenvay, um, are struggling with in Carousel Seas is how to grow the season, how to grow business so that they can bring vitality back to their town. And that's something that um, almost all main towns are struggling with right now. Um, New England always. New England, because we're at the top of the map, I guess, you know, just as things are getting good, New England gets the tail end of it, and then when things go bad, it leaks out of here first. Uh, um, so we're always we're always about 10 years behind everybody. There's Are there still a lot of these sorts of little, uh, little older amusement parks that uh, along the main coast? Sadly, there are not. The amusement park, um, it's called Palace Playland, in Old Orchard Beach, Maine is the last one. Oh, dear. 
They sound so cool. <laughs> you want to be, there's a there's another um, larger land spirit, land thane uh, ruler in the neighborhood whose name is Borgen. Um, he's a guardian, I guess you would call them. Um, tell us about Borgen and his relation with Kate. Borgen is the um, the guardian of the um, of Taco Bay, also also known as the Gulf of Maine. Um, which stretches from, oh, Martha's Vineyard up to, am I going to forget the name of it? Up to Canada, yeah. I'll remember the Prince Edward Island. Um, and the Gulf of Maine is a very interesting piece of, of in its own way. It's a, a very um, <clears throat> fertile and forgiving ocean, and until a piece of ocean, I guess we'll say, um, until just recently, um, and when the real life, real life environmental problems started, it, people were thinking that they would be looking to the Gulf of Maine to feed most of the East Coast. Um, unfortunately, we've been very stupid in real life with the Gulf of Maine, and that's um, that's no longer one of the things they're looking at. Um, but in, in Archer's Beach, um, Borgen is an old and powerful and patient sort of a person, and the, um, the bay takes its character from him as the guardian. Um, it's well disposed toward people as other pieces of ocean are not. Um, and... Borgen feels it's part of his duty as the guardian of this piece of ocean to have good, solid alliances with the land. Um, he's Kate's opposite number, though he's very much older than she is. Um, and rather than immersing himself in the ocean, he wants to stay human so that he'll be a a better ombudsman, I suppose, for for the ocean when things get bad, because he believes that things are going to get bad. And um, he is, uh, he's also Kate's boyfriend. It, he's almost Kate's boyfriend. They're, they're trying to work it out. Kate has, has had uh, <clears throat> some damaging things happen to her in her past. Um, her When she was still a princess, in the land of the flowers, um, a um, a very powerful Ozali knight decided that he was going to take down. He was going to he was going to eat all of the chicken app. He was going to have it all. Um, and part of what he did in this campaign was break her house and drink drink the magic in the house and drink the magic in all the people. Um, he kept Kate and her mom around to toy with and and torment. Um, so Kate has, um, some history and she needs to be handled a little carefully. And Borgen is, again, he's trying very hard to be human, um, but he's quite old. He's, he's um, a couple of centuries old and he still needs to feel his way and not go, not go too fast. Um, and even though... She is much younger than he is. She is the guardian of the land. She is his equal in power, and he needs to to pay attention to that also. And she learns a lot about being a guardian from him as well. 
it's a it's a little um it's a little difficult because his guardianship is so different. The ocean is much different than the land, after all. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but he does introduce her to um, another guardian down coast, um, down in Camp Ellis, another guardian of the land. And he talks to her about the other guardians that had been around, and Kate's getting getting this idea, well, maybe we should set up a, com- a computer listserv so that all the <laughs> guardians can talk to each other. Um, so, you know, things are going to change in the changing land. Or maybe their own Facebook page. I guess they'd need to keep that private, though. They're, no, I think they'd have to keep it private. Yeah. Now, in, part of the uh, the conflict in the story is Borgen's being threatened. Um, not all the Trinvay or Trinvay like that he's the guardian, um, there's a longstanding foe that's, that's trying to, is she trying to over, it's a silky, is, am I right? Um, the pointy tooth. Cr- Borgen is not the, um, how to put this, Borgen is not one of the children of the ocean. He, he's not one of the creatures that the ocean made, like whales and seals and selkies. Um, he's an adopted son. Um, he made a bargain with the ocean that if the ocean would save his people, um, and she accepted that bargain. Unfortunately, when she did that, um, two of the creatures that that she created of her own self um, were displaced in their... Um, <clears throat> displaced in her affections, so they felt. And they, they have um, had a, if you look at the cover on on Carousel Seas, you see this beautiful, beautiful woman and these two gremlins coming out of the waves. Um, and those those two gremlins are um, Borgen's um, lifelong enemies. They have done, that whenever they can do him a mischief, and this goes back up hundreds of years, um, they do it. Um, they've just recently been able to take advantage of him having a, taken a rather bad wound to keep him unconscious and bound for um, much longer than he should have been. Um, so they, they're they always a nuisance, but they're usually not more than a nuisance because of recent events with Kate, with Kate disrupting things on land. Um, they've become a little bit more than a nuisance, and when she releases the prisoners from the carousel one of the prisoners that she releases um came from the land of wave and water and she can't go back home and because this woman has has been um imprisoned for such a long time she's kind of lost her memory and um because of the way in which she was released from her prison she's she's not really sure who she is where she is she knows she can't go home um so she strikes a bargain. The, the Daphne says to her, "Look, my sister and I um, have this problem. That there's um, this this person who's trying to take our power away from us, and, and we can we can marry our um, our causes together. You can help us. We can help you. It'll be a great thing." Um, and the woman who remains nameless, I think, um, throughout the whole book, says, "Yeah, okay, I'll." I'll listen to you, and they grant her safe passage and take her into the ocean. Um, what they want her to do is kill Borgen for them, yeah. because they're under a gaze. They can't kill him. 
they can make his life a misery and a burden, but they cannot kill him. So they've gotten this, basically this pretty powerful interdimensional criminal, perhaps, um, onto their side to, to go up against Borgen and Cade. Right. And unfortunately, um, for the Ronstables, what happens is that this um, the sea goddess um, is attracted to the ocean, to, to the Gulf of Maine, which is such a wonderful and placid and um, giving ocean, and she falls in love with Borgen. Mm-hmm. Um, That's bound to cause troubles with Kate. <laughs> pretty quickly, yeah. <laughs> um, How far do we want to go? I don't want to give any spoilers away in developing um, a, a little bit of the conflict here. That uh, We should also talk about the dummy cats. Um, down in down in Cape Ellis, there is a feral cat colony, and Cape Ellis, the um, the guardian of Cape Ellis that, that Bergen takes Kate to meet, is named Frenchie. Um, and Frenchie's been doing her job for quite a quite a number of years, and the feral cat colony has been there for quite a number of years. Cape Ellis is a working is a working town. It's a it, it's a fisherman town, and you need cats or else you have rats. Um, and the town has always pitched together to take care of the cats and to make sure they have their shots and make sure they have enough food and make sure they have places to, to sleep that um, <clears throat> that are taken care of and cleaned. Um, unfortunately, what has happened is that one of the houses on Camp Ellis has been purchased from a gentleman by a gentleman from away who has decided that the cats are a health hazard and he doesn't like them and he um leans on the town to get rid of the cats so part of part of um what Kate has to do in her or Kate gets involved in in her um copious spare time is the fate of this feral cat colony um and if they're going to relocate them um if they relocate the problem is if you relocate feral cats that are um, that have a long history in a certain place, they'll come back, or they'll try to come back. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's real-world stuff. Um, so there's <clears throat> a lot of um, talk. A lot. Some people in the town don't want the cats to go because they've always been there. They figure that they're townies, just like they are. Um, some of the people want the cats to go. They've sided with the man from away. Um, some people are deciding, okay, well, we'll just take pot shots at the cats and scare them away, but that's not going to work. Um, Kate eventually gets gets herself a cat from this colony. Um, it's sort of is a, a, a side issue um, because the cat is so stunning. She's not just a gray and white cat or a black and white cat. She's, she's just a very distinctive cat that... Um, it's like a witness protection program. They've got to get her out of there or else somebody will kill her um, because she just is, is too distinctive. Did you base this cat on any cat of of, of your personal knowledge? Um, there are feral cats living in Camp Ellis in Maine. Um, they're called the Wormwood Cats, and they live next to Wormwood Restaurant. And they've been there forever, 50 years yeah, and they they really are part of the local culture, part of the town. 
they're part of the town. They're part of Saco. Well, Saco claims Campella, so they're they're Saco citizens. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we want to talk about Kate Kate being the um, heir to the to to what's left of Aronimus House in the Land of the Flowers, um, and her having to to deal with the the um, responsibilities of shutting down the house. While she's trying to say, no, 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 I am not of Simpeki, I'm not of the land of the flowers, my grandfather was a terrible man, um, and he did terrible things, and I just want to forget about it, there is no Aronimus. Um, so she's trying to uh, sort of um, maybe close the door uh, for people coming after her uh, from the land of flowers, perhaps, since she's still connected with this formerly powerful... Uh, Family. She is still connected. She's she's part of the family. She has the blood. Um, and one of the prisoners who is released from the carousel um, is from the land of the flowers, um, who had been a, a servant of her grandfather's, um, and who attaches to her because she is now Aronimus, um and wants her to behave honorably. In, in the lights of the land of the flowers, which Kate would rather forget about in the land of the flowers. Um, the honor in the land of the flowers is something a little different than what we think of as honor here. Um, so she's, she's making, not only do we have the prisoner who has fighted with the Romstables to try to um, arrest Borgen's um, control of the ocean away from him, um, but we have another very powerful being who is aligned with Kate um, tr- now in the changing land, which sets up some interesting, some interesting power, um, power and magical currents. Um, What's the mythos that that we're? Um the, the grinding of the stars above us in the, in the three books. Kate's grandmother says something interesting when they're talking about this conflict that's going on all around them, and they have very little um, knowledge of it, just, just a few things that if you know what you're looking at, seem out of place. And what she says is, um, well, things probably won't change if the rebels win. Um, we won't notice much. And if they lose, we probably won't notice much either, um, because we're down here at the end of the pecking order. Um, whatever happens, happens. Entropy is. Um, and if things, if magic starts to to slide away, the changing land still has its own magic. If the other worlds cease to exist or become so misaligned that you can't get from one to the other, the only people who will know that are people who walk between the worlds, um, which are few and far between, obviously. Um, The overarching theme is that, sadly enough, we we all need each other because these five worlds, these six worlds, are linked, and they're linked for a reason. Um, And as Kate goes on and learns more about 
her magic and as she goes on and learns the geography of the worlds, she realizes that um, the magic flows through the worlds. It comes to the changing land where it's sort of filtered. It's changed and then it, then it flows back. Um, so the changing land, though it's at the end of the stick, is not necessarily the least of the world. It serves a very um, vital function for the other lands. And there's a, it's the this sort of um, magical alignment of and and working together of the various uh, forces. It's kind of it's not mirrored, but it's echoed in in the main details in the contemporary world stuff, um, the relationships of the villagers, uh, to, of the townies to each other and who the bad guys are and, and such. And it interconnects with, with some of the politics of the changing of the, uh, of the, of the larger magical universe. Absolutely. The people who are trying to, to make the change, make the change happen in Archer's Beach so that the town can survive are the carnies. They're the people who nobody pays any attention to. One of the characters says, well, if the, if the town manager could figure out a way to do it, he'd put us all on a bus and send us down to New York tomorrow. Um, so they're the people who are, who are agitating for, for change and for um, things to get better. Um, the people at the top are looking for their own benefit. They're, they're looking to make money. They're looking... Um, they don't care about the town. So it, it comes down to the townies and you know the Trenvay and the half-sighted people and the people who are just just human people trying to, to, to get by to try to change their own lot um, by, their, by their own will. Um, and they have to dig deep in, and find their own talents to, to do these things. So it, it is a, you know, on, on one level, it's, it really is a story about many of the main towns that are struggling to come back. Um, and there isn't anybody but, but us. Um, we're, we're the ones who have to do it. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a beautiful multi-textured series, contemporary fantasy series. And uh, I'm, is it really at an end, Sharon, or, or might we keep going? <laughs> Remember, I sold, I sold Carousel Tides to to Tony Weisskopf as a singleton. Um, uh huh. So it's already. <laughs> said, and said, you know, Tony, there's two more books here, and she went, prove it. And and I wrote her out what I thought was going to happen, and she went, okay, you got him. So I've already stretched this. Um, yeah. I don't I don't want to try her patience any further. Well, it's, I mean, it's a beautiful three-book series, and um, I would recommend, of course, uh, rereading it all the way through and getting the new one, which is out at booksellers everywhere, and it is Carousel Seas. Um, Sharon, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. And now here is part 39 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days.
Here's the setup for what's coming up. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some do not. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy. A type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake is good at it. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse. These are known as the Grim Noir Knights. If the Grim Noir are to be believed, the evil forces of magic introduced into the world have reached a peak, and the apocalyptic finale of humanity may be about to begin. Here is Bronson Pinchot with part 39 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Francis worked the bolt of his Enfield. He'd plugged Maddie's square with a thirty oh six soft point, but the iron guard didn't seem to notice. He fired the remaining rounds at the closest zombie as fast as he could work the bolt. He was an excellent shot since Blackjack had taught him well, and he pulverized the undead body, but it just kept coming. He used his power to reach out and pick up chunks of concrete as heavy as he could lift and started hurling them at the undead. Garrett grabbed him on the shoulder, breaking his concentration right as he put a chunk of rebar through a zombie's face. Fall back, he shouted in his ear. Garrett hefted a bar and laid down fire as he walked backwards. Francis took up his empty rifle and ran. Faye and Sullivan popped into existence so close that he almost tripped over them. Help me, she cried. He's too big. He grabbed one of Sullivan's arms and pulled. Jesus, he weighs a ton. Garrett grabbed the other and they pulled his body further inside. The zombies would be on them in seconds. The heavy stirred. His bloody face scrunched up, and then he pushed Francis away. We gotta get out of here. No kidding, zombies! Francis jerked his head toward the front. He shook his head. Peace, Ray. Browning. You gotta get your people out of here. Maddie's gonna fire the peace ray at us. Jane had just left him and moved to help Delilah. Browning was holding himself up by leaning on the banister, looking pale and weak. Are you certain? Yeah, we ain't got much time. Browning nodded. Lance, get everyone to the tunnels. Jane was starting to use her power on Delilah. No time, girl, Lance said as he leaned down and scooped the brute into his arms. We got to get deep underground. Now, Francis, send out your family summoned to slow them down. Everybody follow me. Francis complied, twisting his ring. He knew that they wouldn't last more than seconds against maddened undead, but that might make all the difference. I... But then he was knocked aside as something fell from the balcony above and landed in their midst. He scrambled back as a hulking slap of a man turned toward him, half his face a ragged mass of scar tissue, soaked in blood, white eye gleaming. 
Maddie. His movements were a blur of fists and magic. Sullivan and Faye hit the far wall. Lance and Delilah went flying over a broken couch. Jane was knocked sprawling. Garrett had time to lift his automatic rifle and fire a single round before Maddie swatted him down the hallway. Heinrich went gray as he charged, but Maddie raised his hands and force exploded outward in a wave. Francis found himself falling down the floor until the wall rushed up to meet him. He bounced off the stone, screaming in pain as his shoulder popped. This the best you got, Grimmies? Maddie taunted, drawing a huge revolver from inside his ruined coat. He jerked suddenly as a chunk of meat exploded from his side, then again as John Moses Browning pummeled him with an Auto 5 shotgun. Maddie spun, firing his huge gun once, and Browning fell, crashing back through the banister and onto the stairs. John! Lance's forty-four flew out of the holster in a speed draw. He opened fire, slamming six rounds into Maddie's chest, neck, and head in a continuous roar. Maddie pointed, and Lance fell upward, crashing through the chandelier and into the beams of the roof. Maddie held him there for a moment, as he rolled something around inside his mouth and spit out a deformed bullet. Then he jerked his hand back, and Lance fell, bellowing until he hit the floor with a sickening thud. Francis spotted a poker lying by the fireplace, concentrated and launched it across the room like a spear. It impaled Maddie through the bicep and deep into the chest, pinning his gun arm to his side. Francis started looking for something else to telekinetically grab when Maddie unleashed another spike, disrupting gravity again, and Francis found himself crammed upside down inside the fireplace when it subsided. He crawled out of the ashes, coughing, Zombies were scrambling through the broken walls, screaming with pain that would never end. The servants in tuxedos and maids' uniforms collided against the undead, smoke and oil breaking against blood and bone. A tiny man dressed entirely in black appeared next to Maddie. Iron Guard, he shouted. I've searched everywhere. The Tesla device is not present. Maddie was occupied dragging the poker out of his body. It made a sickening grating noise as it cleared his ribs. The tip came out with a chunk of tissue wrapped around it. He threw it on the floor with a clatter. What a waste. He lifted his watch. Toshiko, give me a minute to get out of here, then scrub it off the map. Maddie rested his blood-soaked hand over the ninja's shoulder, started to speak, then paused. Hang on. His face crinkled as if he had a strange smell stuck in his nostrils. He walked over to where Jane was unconscious on the floor. What do we have here? A healer? You assholes actually have your own healer. Get away from her, Garrett gasped as he struggled to rise, blood streaming down his face. Maddie reached over and grabbed a fistful of blonde hair. He dragged Jane through the broken glass. You know how rare these are. He was talking to the shadow guard. This should make up for losing an iron guard. He seemed to be having serious difficulty breathing. Get us out of here. Garrett had pulled himself up the wall with a trail of bloody handprints. Leave her alone, he shouted. And the voice that came out of him wasn't the voice of a man, but a roar of thunder. It was like a commandment from a burning bush, and Francis cringed as the words struck him to the very fiber of his being. 
Maddie hesitated. His brow creased as he fought the influence. Damn, you're good. Then he raised his revolver and shot Garrett. The little man went down hard. The shadow guard laid his hands on Maddie and Jane, and the three of them traveled right out of the mansion. Jane! Garrett screamed. Oh, God, no! No! Francis dragged himself across the floor. The zombies were still coming, and if they didn't kill the grimoire, the peace race surely would. They had only one chance. We've got to get to the tunnels, he cried. Lick Hill, California Toshiko's shadow guard were efficient, and that filled her with pride. Bodies were strewn from one end of the command center to the other. The vast majority had died unaware that they were even under attack. She stepped over a headless corpse and took a seat in the observation area. The coordinates had already been dialed in. Unfortunately, all indications were that there was only enough energy for one brief firing, which would be more than sufficient to burn the entire town of Mar Pacifica from the world. But she had been hoping that there would be enough to cut a swath of destruction all the way to San Francisco. It seemed like a waste to her to use such a mighty weapon against so few when it could be used to slaughter thousands. But she wasn't in charge. Yet. One of the men appeared at her side. Is the evidence planted? He nodded, obviously not liking taking orders from a woman, but the chairman had personally put her in charge, so that was just too bad. We have used the guards' rifles to shoot the anarchists. Their manifesto was left at the entrance for all to see. Masaharu has painted their symbol on the doors using the blood of the technicians. Excellent touch, she answered. Framing militant actives had been Maddie's idea. The Bolshevik-funded anarchists had been a constant, yet minor, thorn in the American side for decades, though they had never dared an operation of this immensity. A few known agitators had been easy enough to find in San Francisco. Once the news of their taking over a peace ray reached the wires, a violent response against all American actives would be inevitable. The more pressure that was brought against actives... The more dissension it would bring, the better it would be for the Imperium. She had to admit his plan was remarkable in its simplicity. She checked her mirror. Her traveler had exhausted his power getting Maddie, the other iron guard, and a blonde woman back to their trucks. She was disappointed to see that she had lost one of her fellow shadow guard. Travelers were irreplaceable. The chairman would be displeased. They would be out of the kill zone in a matter of minutes. Charge the tower, she ordered. Sullivan had taken a beating, but he was still strong enough to carry both Delilah and Lance, one under each arm. Heinrich had Garrett while Francis had thrown the surprisingly frail weight of John Moses Browning over his shoulders in a fireman's carry. Behind them, a butler's limbs were torn off, one by one, and smoke from the destroyed summoned obscured the first floor. Faye brought up the rear, carrying Browning's shotgun. She blasted a rushing undead in the knee, then slammed the kitchen door shut just as it slid into the wood with a crash. Heinrich took the lead, Garrett's arm thrown over one shoulder, his shoes dragging limp, leaving blood splatter across the pale tiles. Heinrich kicked open a door and started down. 
Fay was stronger than she looked and shoved a table against the door as the zombies crashed into it. Schnell, hurry, Heinrich shouted. Francis stumbled after them, his arms slick with blood. Browning wasn't moving. Francis was so scared he could barely breathe. Maddie was in no shape to drive, so he sat in the passenger seat of the truck as the shadow guard took them up to their maximum speed of 50 miles an hour. He'd made Hiroyasu, that cowardly bag of piss, ride in the back. The handful of surviving men probably wouldn't make it to the other truck in time, and that was if the undead didn't lose it and pull them apart, but that was too bad. They hadn't particularly impressed him, so no great loss. The peace ray would take care of the evidence. He could always recruit more. The grim noir had managed to hurt him bad. Every one of his kanji was earning its keep now, forcing his heart to keep pumping, moving oxygen to his brain and knitting together broken blood vessels. He was starving. Getting hurt always made him hungry. I could really go for a good meatloaf and a cold Coca-Cola. The healer stirred, came awake and screamed her heart out when she saw him. She started thrashing, which he found annoying, and the driver jerked the truck when she struck his face, so... Maddie reached over and knocked the hell out of her with the back of his hand. Her face struck the dash. That'll leave a mark, he said. Keep squealing in my ear and I'll pop you a good one next time. She folded her arms tight and seemed to shrink into the seat, trying not to cry. What are you going to do with me? You'll be lucky if it's with you and not to you, he snorted. You can start earning your keep by fixing the hole in my heart. You got any power left after that? I've got one lung full of blood. Her eyes grew defiant. I'll never help the likes of you. She had a spine. He could appreciate that. Bitch, you heard of Unit 731? That scared her. Everybody had heard about them. Yeah, you know what those weirdos would give to have a mender to experiment on? especially a soft little thing like you. He rubbed one hand down her bruised cheek and she flinched away. So, unless you want them carving on you, you'll do what I say. He gave her a second to think about it while he checked his watch. They should be clear of the blast. Toshiko light him up. It will be done, she responded from fifty miles away. Accelerators are at full, but that's barely seven percent of maximum. Lazy Americans can't be bothered to even maintain their equipment, firing in two minutes. It'll do, he said. We are on our way out. There was relief in her words. He couldn't blame her. The Imperium's recent experiments into ray technology showed that the very air around a beam could kill or sicken you. Some sort of invisible poison got in the atmosphere and it would actually damage your cells. He'd once seen Unit 731 tie a bunch of prisoners to stakes at various distances along the path of a small beam, and they timed everyone to see how long it took them to die, either burned immediately or throwing their lungs up and dying covered in black blisters. It hadn't been pretty, but he wasn't worried about that now. He'd got himself a new pet healer. The stairs were steep. Sullivan's big boots could barely find purchase on the narrow stones. The muscles in his arms were burning almost like the magical fire on top of his chest. He had Delilah clamped under one arm and he hoped that she would hang on. She'd lost so much blood that he was terrified to even look at her. 
Lance was short, weighed a ton, and was completely unconscious and therefore useless. His auto rifle was still banging back and forth on its sling against his back, but he was too worried about zombies following them down to drop it. An electric battery torch had been stashed at the top of the stairs, and all he could see was a narrow, pale beam swinging back and forth ahead as Heinrich led them into the bowels of the earth. Delilah cried out in pain as he slipped and hit the damp wall. It'll be okay, baby. We're gonna make it, he whispered. They kept going. Behind them, someone tripped and cursed. They needed to stop and tend to the wounded. Keeping Delilah moving was a death sentence, just as surely as stopping and waiting for the peace ray to end them. They had to be a couple hundred feet under the ocean cliffs by now, and he didn't know if that would be enough. How much further? The rich kid, Francis, was a few feet away. Almost there, he gasped. Not good enough. If this ray had a fraction of the energy as the one they'd hit Berlin with, there wouldn't be near enough dirt overhead to save them. They hadn't called it the Peace Ray then. The Brits had christened it Tesla's Sickle, but his boys weren't poetic. They had simply called it the Death Ray. Kinetic energy had shattered everything around the impact zone and turned the Reichstag into a blackened pit. But it was the wave of carnage that had radiated out from it that had done the real killing. Sullivan had seen the bodies like broken charcoal statues frozen wherever they'd been when the destroying angel had come. One snap of light, and a whole city had died. The heat alone would be enough to steam them like lobsters in this tunnel. Move faster, Sullivan bellowed to nobody in particular. There was a noise ahead, water crashing against stone, and behind the hate-filled screams of the dead, and under his arm a rasping breath as Delilah's life slipped further away, and over everything came the crackling hum as the peace ray hit, light filled the universe, and for the first time in many years, Sullivan prayed for a miracle. The peace ray discharged at fifteen minutes after two o'clock in the morning. It was not an impressive sight from Lick Hill, even if any of the crew had been alive to appreciate it. In fact, with the warning klaxons disabled by the shadow guard, the only sign of the impending destruction was a single match flicker of white, as particles were hurled up a thousand-foot copper spiral to a terrible velocity and flung to the west. The simple fused dynamite explosion at the base of the tower a moment later possessed not even the tiniest glimmer of the peace ray's power, but it would leave a few steel girders twisted delicate cog-designed electronics shattered and the costly weapon disabled. But by the time that was done, the peace ray had already struck the small coastal town of Mar Pacifica. Only the undead were walking at the impact point, their skeletons briefly visible through their flesh like a perfect X-ray, frozen in time, before being swept away in cleansing fire. Even at only 7% power, the flash was seen as far away as Sacramento. That was part 39 of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Jotkowitz. 
and the key to the gateway of the kingdom of flowers and a big contractor's lock to put on it when she is away, plus a thousand enchanted leaves dancing a dance of thanks and praise to Sharon Lee, author of Carousel Seas. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy storytelling and keep reaching for the stars.